Good morning once again. Thank you, uh, Abby, for leading that for us and for Paula and for Dorothy for uh, being so faithful uh, to those positions. You guys are so awesome. Thank you so much for doing that, uh, for real. Uh, but listen, so glad that you're here with us this morning, so grateful um, for uh, you to brave the weather, as we said, uh, to come out. There's a lot of awesome things that are going on. I want to go ahead and just say this. If you are a guest here with us, morning, uh, with us this morning, would you uh, fill out a guest card for us? Uh, let us know that you, uh, that you came, um, that you were a part, of, a part of this today. We'd love to connect with you, um, to just uh, let you know more about ourselves, to get to know you a little better at whatever rate you're comfortable with, and so we'd love to uh, to, uh, to learn more about you. Um, we've been in a study um, through the book of 1 Timothy, right? We still have some journals back there, some Bible journals back there if you're uh, interested in that. Um, but listen, it's been a great study. Uh, we're going to look today um, in the middle of chapter 1 in verses 8 through 11. We have this list here that Paul gives us. And so I want to invite Kathy Yalef, who's going to read our passage for us this morning. And I want to go ahead and just say this too. Um, as we are prayerfully leading into this passage, would you be praying already for your own hearts, that the, that the Spirit would uh, unveil things to you as you um, need them unveiled, um, and we'll trust him uh, and his provision over his word as we study it together. And so, Kathy, take it away. Starting with verse 8, but we know that the law is good provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. Great. Thank you so much. Let's have a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for this time that we have together. Grateful for um, just your provision for us. We pray now that you would continue that provision for us in the study of your word. As we look at a list filled with sensitive topics, God, we ask that you would give us um, the understanding that we are all lawbreakers, um, that this list is not meant to uh, weaponize, uh, to be weaponized against others. This list is to be inclusive, that we would all find our place in it, and that we would all seek Jesus um, as our response. God, we pray that you would do this work among us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, let me go ahead and just ask, did I invite everybody to stand for the word, or did you guys just do that yourselves? Did I actually do that? Okay, well, good. But either way, that's great for you guys, too. To, anytime we forget to uh, stand in honor of the word, you feel free to stand um, and do that yourselves. And so thank you for doing that. Uh, I love that moment that we have to, uh, to partake in the scripture reading together. Listen, in 1975, there was a man by the name of Tim Leatherman. Uh, he and his wife took this soul-searching trip through Europe and the Middle East by driving a broke-down $300 Fiat. It was constantly breaking down. They were staying in hotel rooms that always had linking pipes and on and on. And he attempted to uh, address all of these problems with the tool that he had, which was a pocket knife. And it was this scenario and situation that led Leatherman to the life-changing idea, if only I had a pocket knife that doubled as a pair of pliers. 
And you've probably heard of the Leatherman multi-tool. Tim Leatherman is now the father of the multi-tool. Filthy rich, by the way. Um, sells, um, returns over $140 million uh, a year. And uh, you can buy a Leatherman multi-tool at Menards today if you wanted to. But you won't have to because special Valentine's treat from us to you. Everyone is walking out today with a free Leatherman multi-tool. And some of you are shaking your heads because you know that's not true. We make a lot of false promises like that around here. Um, and, you know, those are like 50 bucks a pop, so that would be pretty expensive. This isn't Oprah. We don't do that kind of stuff. But all that to say Leatherman, right? Um, it all started back when Leatherman was trying to meet his need with an insufficient tool. Ironically, it was the insufficiency of the pocket knife that proved to be the greatest tool that he had to point him to the ultimate solution. And in our passage today, we start with another insufficient tool. It's ironic in a bit that its primary power is actually in its insufficiency. And yet it points the user to the ultimate solution. And the tool that we're talking about is the law. It's the law. It's what we talked about last week. It's what we're going to talk about this week as verse 8 opens. But we know that the law is good provided one uses it legitimately. Uh, there's a legitimate use to the law, but there's also an illegitimate use to the law. As Brett talked about last week, Pastor Brett mentioned the idea of, of legalism, this illegitimate use of the law to preach and teach that you can earn a right standing with God. Right? In a, in a general sense, it means that you can earn your salvation through your actions. This is illegitimate teaching. This is not legitimate and it's spoken from people who who don't even know what they're talking about that's what paul says in verse seven they want to be teachers of the law although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are even insisting on right so there's an illegitimate way to use the law but there's also a very legitimate way to use the law even for us even now Right? And so what is it? Well, the law that we read about in the first five books of the Bible, right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these are the law books. This is the law of God. And it was given from God to his people to direct morality, to direct worship, to direct even civil law among God's people. It was the way of obedience. But even in the Old Testament, we see clearly the law's inability to supply lasting forgiveness or redemption for God's own people, let alone the whole world. And so the most legitimate use of the law applies to all, from all eras and traditions of faith, and it is this, the most legitimate use of the law is to reveal the sinfulness of mankind. It's to reveal your sin, it's to reveal my sin. This is the legitimate use of the law. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says this, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Legalism doesn't count, right? It's illegitimate. That's what he's saying. He goes on to say, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. We know our sin because of the law. Romans chapter 7 verse 7 says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. Even here we see that the law is good provided it's used illegitimately. It says, but I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. The law reveals sin. It's like trying to connect a hose on your car with a pocket knife. You can, in pride and tradition, insist that this is the only way you're convinced of it and it's what you've been doing your whole life. Or, after feeling the struggle of the insufficiency, you can let the insufficient nature of the law point you to the ultimate 
solution, who we all know is Jesus Christ. When used legitimately, the law reveals our sin and points us in the direction of our Savior. What we need is lasting forgiveness, not momentary relief. We need Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and 13, it says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Verse 13 says, though, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We're all cursed. Without Christ, we are not redeemed. And we are still under the curse that the law reveals. Okay. He goes on to say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, looking at verse 9, we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. Who are the righteous that are being referred to here in this passage? Well, I've heard two teachings, and I think they both work, to be honest. The first are the, you know, if you read it as the righteous in in sarcastic quotation marks, right? The self-declared righteous. And this is kind of somewhat of the context that we were talking about in legalism. The self-declared righteous who look at the law uh, as a way of just feeling more righteous themselves without ever using it to realize their own sin. This is legalism to which Jesus says in Mark chapter 2 verse 17, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Bible says none are righteous, not even one. So he's using righteous there as as a reference to those who are self-declared righteous. But he came to save those who are sinners. Sinners, as we all are, but who know it and admit it. He's the answer, right? And so this passage works, certainly. The law doesn't have much power for these people who are so blinded and so negligent of the real legitimate use of the law that they don't let it impact their own lives. But then there's also the truly righteous, right? Those who Christ has made righteous after one realizes his own sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there are the righteous who they have come to that place of understanding their own sin before God and they've handed over to Jesus and in Jesus' grace he's imparted to them his righteousness. And because of that, the law is not meant for you anymore to reveal your sin, though the law certainly has power for us, even as New Testament believers, to remind us of what we've been saved from. It does not have the power and the meaning to drive us towards the Lord because we already have him. So if you look at it and read either either side of that, it both they, they both work. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. Okay, I love I love that. The law is most useful for senior, sinners who are genuinely seeking a solution. And so what we have here is a list of sinfulness. And the list is designed for all to read it and to find themselves in it. To be sinners who are seeking a savior, seeking a solution who is Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of slowly go through it. I'm going to make a few little notes, and then we're going to make some uh, big observations about this list and how we as Christians should be reading it moving forward, okay? And so let's start by just reading through the passage together. Starting in, uh, let's start in verse 9, because we already read 8. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinful, for the unholy 
and their reverence. Let me stop there. I don't know about you guys, but I'm already six for six. Anybody else? This is a very general list calling out the sinful condition of people, and it affects your behavior, your attitude. It's the sinful condition that we all have. And so if you're here and you can honestly say, I already make the list, then, then good for you, because that's how you're supposed to do it. Okay? But then it gets more specific. The list goes on to say, he, he mentions those who kill their fathers and mothers and for murderers. All right? Well, now I'm six for eight. <laughs> I've never murdered anybody, you know, and I don't understand what the context here is as far as killing fathers and mothers, right? The best uh, description I heard was from a scholar who, who, who um, looked at the Greek word for kill and saw that it also is meant for smite. So one of the ways you can read that is uh, in direct conflict with the fifth commandment, which is to honor your father and mother, right? That we would smite our parents, we would come to a place of such disobedience and such disrespect and such disregard for the voice of our parents that they might as well be dead in our lives. It's a direct conflict with the fifth commandment to love your parents or to honor your parents, okay? And that's the point. He's drawing, again, the sinfulness that comes in, in the conflict of the law and the way that the law reveals itself in people. And then you have murdering. That's pretty clear. That's pretty obvious. He goes on to talk about some matters of sexual deviancy. He says, uh, for the sexually immoral and the homosexuals. And if you're reading one of the, uh, the journals back there, we're all reading from the CSB, I think, but that's a newer translation of the CSB, and it, it spells it out for you. It says, males who have sex with males, which is the appropriate use of the word. Both of these, rightly in the list. Both of them, very um, debatable in our day. Mo very blurred lines. Sexual immorality, yeah, very blurred. Homosexuality, yes. People defend this with their lives, but they're both rightly in the list. Whether you agree with it or not, they're both rightly in the list. I want to make a few notes, though, about this, because the intent of this list, again, is not to weaponize this passage against a certain group of people. That's not the intent. The intent is that even if you break one of these, that you're a lawbreaker, and we all find ourselves in the list from murderers to liars. We are all equal in the fact that we are all sinful, broken individuals. We have it in us. Sexuality is one of the ways that Satan has just wreaked havoc on our culture. And I want to be honest with you, in almost any statistic measure, the vast majority of people who come into this building today struggle with sexuality on a regular basis in one shape or form. Whether that be marriage bed issues between two loving people, raging hormones and those coming of age and you don't know what to do with it, confusing attractions and impulses, a traumatic sexual history, pornography addictions, spouses who fantasize about something different, or men who, as I like to say, can't keep their eyes in their pants. They just constantly are looking, constantly gazing, constantly gawking, and they have no control over their eyes or their minds. Sexuality is a broad thing, and most people deal with it and struggle with it one way or the other. Why? Well, it's because we all have it. And it's a good gift from God. And as a good gift from God, just like everything else, it's come under attack. 
It's getting harder for people to, to know how to handle their attractions, to handle their hormones, to handle their impulses, to handle their sexuality in non-sexual ways. The world pushes sexual exploration. Oftentimes the church teaches avoid it at all costs. And what you have in the middle is a bunch of confused people. And so I want to invite you, wherever you're at in this world of sexuality, if you have it, I want to invite you to invite God into the experience. To let God speak into it. To not be so full of shame that you don't let him into it. And to not, uh, to not rule him out either. But to align your heart with his on the matter. And see if he doesn't bring you a level of patience that you haven't had. Of joy and self-control and contentment and perseverance that you've not known before. Don't let it be one of those compartments in your life that you just think, well, God doesn't really have any interest in this part of me, and so I'm going to manage that myself because what it's producing in our world is not good. Let it be a matter of prayer for you, your own sexuality. Okay. He moves on. We have those issues, and he goes on to talk about slave trading, liars, perjurers. These are pretty self-explanatory, are you? Whether you're, whether you're lying to your friend or you're lying on the stand, you know, obviously slave trading, not good. All universal stuff here, all part of the list, all outward expressions of a spiritual condition that we all have. And then he goes on to say this, in case he missed anything, he says, for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. So he made a small list. The list is a million times bigger. It can, the sinful condition that we all have can show itself in a multitude of ways. And so how do we as believers look at this list, understanding the comprehensive nature of it? How are we as believers to read this list? And let me go ahead and just say this. The first uh, one I think is, is very important for us to understand. If you've already understood it, you found yourself in the list, praise God, that's the intent. Because we need to read it first and foremost with self-reflection in mind first. If you're reading this list just so that you have more ammunition against other people who don't agree with you, you're reading it wrong. And we don't need any more of that. We don't. Find yourself in the list. And if you're a lawbreaker, you're a lawbreaker, and you're no better or worse than anybody else in the list. The only difference is maybe you have Jesus. And the first reason that we need to self-reflect first is this, it avoids legalism. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, for whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles even at one point is guilty of breaking it all. We are all lawbreakers. The second reason is this, because it appropriates our response. First of all, our response to the sin in our own lives. We deal with it by letting the grace of Jesus Christ cover it, right? It's the only way to, to, to grab on to his extension of grace that was afforded to us by the cross uh, of Jesus, right? It also appropriates our, our response to the sin in everyone else, which again is not to weaponize the word against people who don't agree with us, but if we want Jesus' grace in response to our own sin, then why would we not extend Jesus' grace to other people who are struggling with the same exact thing that we are, which is a sinful, broken nature? So we receive his grace and we extend his grace. I'm not asking you to compromise truth. Don't ever do that. But you also don't have to be a huge jerk about it. Full of grace and truth was the model that Jesus laid out for us. And I would hope that we would respond in the same way. 
people don't care about the voices of stuck-up Christians who, who only weaponize the, the, the word to be right in scenarios. People, people know the grace of Christ whenever people have a genuine interest in them and their struggle. And so you, in grace, bring truth into the mix. Now, the second thing I want to say about this list is, is what we see right at the end, right? And it's basically this, that your life reflects the teachings that you conform to. Your life reflects the teachings that you conform to. And I hope that you see uh, the connection between living and teaching, right? He made a long list of behavioral issues, attitude issues, sinful condition that we all have. And then he goes on to say anything else that does not conform to the gospel, the sound teaching of the gospel, the teachings that you let cultivate um, and, and grow in your heart, that's what comes out in your living. It doesn't really matter what you say, right? Because there's a lot of people who have uh, a higher <laughs> image of themselves than they should. It doesn't even really matter what you say you believe because there's a lot of people who say they believe in the tenets of the gospel and of the grace of Jesus Christ, but they don't express it in the way that they live. Our living is determined by the teachings that take root in our hearts. And any teaching that does not conform to the gospel leads to ungodly living. And ungodly living expresses itself in a litany of ways, a few listed here in 1 Timothy, millions more summed up in Paul's phrase, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. That's broad and it's all-inclusive. So on this note, just to reiterate a truth that you've been hearing since we started uh, in 1 Timothy, don't let false teachings run your life. Test them all. Put yourself in the path of sound teaching, and so when you hear it, receive it. And when the teaching does not have Christ as the central focus, and when the teaching is not consistent with the word of God, resist it at all costs. Resist it at all costs. The third note that I want to make about this list is one that's just been wrecking me um, over the last few weeks as I've been praying and studying just about this. Um, and it's simply this, that sin is overwhelming. Sin is overwhelming. Let me explain, right? This list is quite small in the infinite realm of how sinfulness may rear its ugly head. But even so, it does a fine job reminding us of sin's dominance over the human experience. We live in a culture that despises the idea of sin. We're often so inflated, egocentric, proud, self-loving, so much so that people hate to be told that anything about the way that they are living is sinful. And so we just refuse to believe that cultural trends and things that, that feel good by all worldly standards could actually come from a sinful source. And so far too often, churches even reinforce this with preachers and uh, others who refuse to acknowledge it with their own people, with their own congregations, right? You've seen them out there. Many vibrant, big, massive ministries who never, ever tell their people that you are sinful. Turns out calling out sin isn't the fastest way to sell books and to draw in crowds, right? I suppose we could change that up here, right? We can get to just this motivational place of, you know, Jesus loves you. You're an overcomer. You can do it. Let's go, you know, just be the better version of ourselves, you know. I throw in a multi-tool, you know, and we got a, a really awesome church growth strategy, don't we? We'll be at 1,000 people in about three months. But that's not the full story of the scriptures. That's not the gospel. 
um, not even in the slightest. And so I think the underestimation of sin is one of the greatest tragedies of our day. We spend our time defending and sugarcoating, working so hard to blend Jesus in with all of the questionable things out there. And so I hope today we would take a day to understand that we are all individuals so stained by sin, it is unbearable without the gospel. Apart from Jesus Christ, because of the sin in my own life, I would not be able to be here today. I would have wasted away a long time ago. And many of you probably feel the same way. Apart from the gospel, I don't have a leg to stand on. I have nothing good in my life apart from the gospel. Sin is just too big and overwhelming for me. We so often, I think, condense sin to being merely a, a series of bad choices, right? Don't choose that. That's a sinful choice. And sure, sin plays out that way, but every willful sin has a natural root and original source. We all have been stained by it. And just to give you an example of this, right, the Bible says in Psalm 139 that God has knit people together in his mother's womb. I think Pastor Brett referred to this verse last week. And I've always struggled with that verse as a person with a genetic lung disease, did God create that in me? Was that intentional? Or did he make a mistake? Or is the impact of sin so great that it impacts people at a cellular level, even at conception, even before people have any ability to choose anything? Everything in the list that we see here in 1 Timothy is a willful expression of an innate spiritual condition that hits us at a cellular level. We all have it. And because of that, we all grow up in a world subject to flawed bodies and flawed hearts, subject to uncontrollable exterior conditions such as being born uh, in a harsh society or having abusive parents, subject to the sinfulness of, of others our entire lives, Subject to life itself with all of its toil and strife and loss and grief. And most of all, subject to our own inability to respond to it all without it dominating our own will. And according to the Bible, no matter where you feel like you fit in this, according to the Bible, none have ever been able to withstand the effects of natural sin or volitional sin except for one man. One man only has ever done it. And his name is Jesus Christ. And as this passage ends with a, with a call to the gospel, so I want to make the end of this message as well. He talks about the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel, the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to the apostle Paul. It's been entrusted to me, and it's been entrusted to you too. Sin is great. Sin is overwhelming. Jesus is overwhelmingly greater, and he's the only one who is. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's not the end of the story. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus came. He did what he did because nobody else could ever do it. He subjected himself to the human experience. But because his nature remained godly, he was able to endure a world of sin without submitting to it. He lived without sin and yet still died the sinner's death for us. And you might think, well, well, if sin is so strong and I never had a chance or a choice out of it, then why would that be worthy of a sinner's death? It's a good question. The first way I would answer that is, too, it's a matter of the nature of holiness. God is completely pure, completely perfect, 
completely good in his essence and being. And if you believe God to be perfectly holy in nature, but then expect him to make exceptions to unholy things so that it sits well with you, then you don't truly believe in a perfectly holy God. It's like throwing a leaf in the middle of a volcano and expecting it not to burn. This cannot be, there cannot be any partnership between a holy God and even a shred of sin. It's not a matter of choice. It's a matter of nature. He is holy and we are not. That being said, God knows this dilemma that we have. He knows that we can never be holy, and yet it is holiness that is required. And so God, without compromising his own nature, became our advocate. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says this, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus made a way. And even me here, fully broken, fully sinful, I have a good track record, and yet... He in his righteousness has made me holy, and he set me on a path for it. We do not deserve that. It is unreal. He became sin for us so that we could become holiness, so that he could see us as holy. He's paid the penalty of our sinful condition. He's claimed us at his own. And even now, as we are in the midst of struggling with sin, volitional and natural, he is our advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, My little children, I'm writing you these things that you so, so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's our advocate. We don't deserve it. In the, in the vast chasm between his holy nature and our sinful nature, he made a way through the cross of Jesus Christ. The second thing I would say in response to that question, if sin is so strong and I never had a chance or choice out of it, then why would that, why would that be worthy of a sinner's death? And I would like to just go ahead and correct that. You do have a chance and you do have a choice. It's just not the one that you thought it was. Right? The choice that you have is not whether or not you'll be a sinner or not because that's already done deal. We all made the list. We are all sinful. We are all broken. The choice is whether or not you will choose to admit it and submit to it, to the grace of Jesus Christ. The only one who can triumph over your sin so that you can live this life freed from the sinful standing that you once had. And on your judgment day, Christ Jesus is advocating on your behalf, presenting his scars as your own payment so that you may have fellowship with your creator. Is Jesus your advocate today? Do you have his scars Reflecting your own belief in him? And if not, I assure you that this offer is made for you today. You can actually know without a shadow of a doubt that you are his and that he is yours. And he invites you to acknowledge your sin and to claim his scars as your own proof of payment for, you, for your sin. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 13 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Listen, I want to invite everybody to bow your heads, uh, to close your, close your eyes. Even if you're tuning into the live stream, would you do the same? And I want to invite all who are feeling the, the call of the Lord on their life to call on his name this morning. Maybe you don't know the words, and that's fine because it's the belief that means more than anything. And if you, but if you need some help putting words 
to your call upon Jesus this morning, that you can follow my lead as I pray a simple prayer. I want to pray with you on this. And you can believe this prayer. The prayer is the call, but, but it's the belief behind it that matters. And in full belief, you can pray something like this. You can say, Jesus, I'm aware of my own sin and I cannot compete with it. But even though my, my sin is great, I know that you are overwhelmingly greater. And I believe that you came to the world to pay the price for my sin on the cross. I believe that you rose from the grave and are alive today. And I believe that you are Lord over all. Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin? Share with me your righteousness and holiness. Save my life. Be my advocate and Lord so that I may live for you now and forever. In your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Listen, heads up, eyes open. If you prayed that prayer today, wherever you're at, tuning in, um, or in here right now, I pray that you would let myself know. And we have at least one or two elders in here, too. We would love to meet you, to get you going on this relationship with Jesus Christ, because you have believed in him and have called upon him as your salvation. We praise God for that. If you uh, gave your life to Christ today online, let us know. Send us an email. Uh, contact us through our website. Let us know you gave your life to Christ. I'd love to give you some resources and help you get started on this. It's such a big deal. I praise the Lord for any work that he might have done today. But listen, everyone else in this room, <laughs> a lot of new believers, maybe a lot of people who have been weathered, uh, you know, seasoned in your faith in Jesus Christ, myself included. Anytime you can be overwhelmed once again with the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, just like I do, we can fall into places in our faith where we become dull to sin. We just fall in line with the routine. My guess is many people who are tuning in today, who come into this building today, are coming with all kinds of feelings of being overwhelmed. Whether that be something challenging your health, an addictive habit, family struggle, marital issue. Maybe as a result of the word today, you have a renewed sensitivity regarding your own sin. You've been dulled to it, and maybe by, by your own volition, and you realize now that you need to submit that to the Lord. Whatever it is, you need to know Jesus is greater. He's stronger. He can, bring, he can bring peace to the struggle. He can bring hope in the confusion, and he can bring grace to the shame. So wherever you're at today, would we let the grace of Jesus Christ overwhelm us most this morning and all for his glory. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace, for your love, for your kindness, for your goodness, for your scars that you have allowed us to use as our own. God, that we would have fellowship with our creator because of the work that you have done. We just don't get it, how wonderful and how great this is, God. And even though we get in times in our lives where we're overwhelmed by sin, or just by the, uh, the exterior things that just seem to crowd us out, Father, I pray that today we would make a motion towards you, that we would be overwhelmed by your grace above it all, and that we would relinquish the things that we've been holding on to, that we would let go of anything else that we've been struggling with, that we would just release it to you because you are greater, you are more powerful. Nothing else is as great as you are. And we have great confidence in that. We're grateful for that hope in, um, in Jesus Christ this morning. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Listen, uh, we're going to respond today with a song. Um, and so as Abby leads us and as we stand to sing, I pray that you would let the word just ruminate in your heart about these things, that you'd be overwhelmed with the grace of Christ this morning. Why don't you stand and we'll sing.